Lord, we, uh, we remember that while the grass withers and the flower fades, that the word of our God endures forever. And this word that is before us, you have purposed for us today. May it prove to be a word of life. Speak your word to us, O Lord, and give us what we need to sustain us in our earthly pilgrimage until we enter into the full fellowship that is ours in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, the World Health Organization uh, has done surveys in uh, other countries uh, throughout the, the globe. And in some countries, 60 to 70% of women say that they have been physically and or sexually abused at some point in their lifetime. Uh, the World Health Organization has also found that predominantly in cases of abuse, they involve a male perpetrator and a female victim. Within our own country, the number sits around, and this is a conservative estimate, the number sits around 25% of women who say that they have been physically and or sexually abused in their lifetime. That's leaving aside various other forms of abuse. Uh, emotional, psychological, social, financial, spiritual abuse. It's a serious problem in the culture, and it's a serious problem in the church. And as a result, everybody is thinking about what's What's causing this? What's, what's the reason behind all of this abuse? And is there a solution to this problem? Uh, some geneticists say that the problem stems from genetic programming. And so uh, the solution is uh, genetic engineering. Some psychologists say that male abuse of women is rooted in uh, self-esteem problems in the man, and therefore part of the solution at least involves uh, counseling uh, so that that man might have better self-esteem and better perception of, of others. Sociologists of the egalitarian sort suggest that the problem is patriarchal institutions and structures, and if we're ever going to see any progress in the area of of abuse in our culture, in our society, then what needs to happen is these patriarchal institutions and structures need to go away to achieve a true equality in society. Now, for sure, I, th I think we, we don't want to dismiss some of those insights outright. I, genes can play a role. Uh, counseling is an important factor in dealing with abuse and uh, twisted and um, corrupt institutions and structures ought to be reformed. But I don't think any voices in our culture actually accurately address the problem of abuse, and, and therefore they don't provide 
the key solution to the epidemic of abuse in the culture and within the church. I think the book of Judges is a great place for us to go as we think about this important issue because the book of Judges chronicles various forms of abuse against women and explains the root cause of such abuse. In fact, what I hope we'll see this morning is the book of Judges connects how women and children are treated among the people of God to the spiritual health or lack thereof among the covenant community of God's people. In other words, how women and children are treated among the, the, the people of God is a barometer by which we can measure the spiritual climate of God's people. Uh, today, I, I want us to think about fallen and redeemed sexuality uh, under these two broad headings under fallen, uh, I'm sorry, I said sexuality, Sunday school's creeping in here. Uh, under fallen masculinity, I want us to consider two, two ideas from the book of Judges. First, I want us to survey the cases of abuse in Judges and look at the root cause according to the book of Judges of abuse. So cases and cause, and then we'll turn to the Ephesians text to see the, the radical contrast that Paul sets forth for redeemed masculinity, renewed masculinity in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin, first of all, then, with fallen masculinity in the book of Judges. And, and, and first, we need to understand the purpose of this book. The book of Judges is not about heroic human figures. There are actually very few truly heroic human figures in the book of Judges. Um, it, it's not merely a, a, a historical book. It is a book about the spiritual and consequently moral freefall of the people of God after God, through Joshua, led his people into the promised land. I think there's a clue in the Hebrew Bible that will help us here. The place of Judges in the Hebrew Bible differs from our English Bibles. Judges in the Hebrew text is within a section known as the former prophets indicating that Judges is not merely a, a, a historical record. It's not merely a book setting up the time of the kings, though it is doing that. But fundamentally, the book of Judges is a prophetic cry exposing the unbelief, faithlessness, and pride of Israel while pointing people to the Lord who graciously and repeatedly intervenes on behalf of a stubborn and rebellious people. Judges is a sobering book, dear friends, because Judges is about the canonization of Israel. It is about the church of that day being conformed to the world instead of to the gracious and holy God who had called them out of the world to himself. And the effects of world conformity 
are seen not merely in the paganization of Israel's religious practices, but perhaps even more foundationally in the social and domestic life of the people of God, particularly in the way that men treat women. You cannot avoid this theme in the book of Judges. In other words, what what I'm saying here is is a primary way Judges exposes the spiritual rot among the people of God is by recounting the sad story of men abusing power. And so the book of Judges is a prophetic cry against Israel's sins, speaking out against it and calling them to repent. But dear friends, the book of Judges still sounds a prophetic cry to the church today. It continues to to offer an analysis of a compromised people of God in any age, calling them once again back to the Lord by way of repentance, calling them to walk in his ways. And, And one parallel where I think we may see that canonization is still taking place among the people of God today is in the way in which men among the covenant community of God's people treat women and children. So let's run through Judges to see the cases of abuse And then we'll turn briefly to the root cause of abuse. We start with Gideon. Uh, After his victory over the Midianites, Gideon set himself up as a quasi-monarch, claiming the vast majority of the spoils of victory, uh, demanding garments of royalty, erecting a national shrine to centralize worship, naming his son Abimelech, uh, my father is king, and by forming a royal harem. A royal harem is fundamentally degrading to women. A royal harem was essentially a collection of women made up of wives and concubines who belonged to the king. And royal harems served at least two primary purposes. Publicly, they were a way of Uh, achieving political alliances and showing off to visitors. But privately, members of the harem existed to satisfy the sexual appetites of the king. And so privately and publicly, uh, the harem violates the dignity of women, treating them as property to be exploited for public relations and privately for personal satisfaction. And Gideon, in this way, was conformed to the world in his day, reducing women to trophies and sex objects. And and the abuse of women escalates in the story of Jephthah. Uh, His own story is, before we can get specifically to the details there, we need to recognize that his own life story is marked by male exploitation as he is the child of Gilead's rendezvous with a prostitute. Prostitute is recognized as the oldest 
independent female profession. And for sure, some, some women have chosen this way of life. Nevertheless, that does not set aside its fundamentally degrading effects, dehumanizing effects. But we also need to keep in mind that for many women during this time, and for many, many women today, women find themselves in a place of prostitution because they have been coerced and compelled into that way of life, indeed sold into that way of life. Or perhaps other women have, when they needed the social family structures of the day to provide them with support and those things failed, came to believe that this was the only way to obtain some means of income. But like a harem, prostitution reduces women to mere sex objects to be used for male gratification. And while prostitution may not be a prevalent problem in the American church, dear friends, pornography is. And we need to at least say this, that prostitution and pornography are similar in that they both reduce women to be mere sex objects used for male gratification. So both are fundamentally degrading to women. But let's go to Jephthah here and his rash vow in Judges chapter 11. Uh, God used Jephthah to uh, once again deliver his people from their enemies, and Jephthah made a foolish vow in that context. He said, if God will let me destroy the Ammonites, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering whatever comes out of my door when I return home. Oh, God, God gave the victory. But when Jephthah returned home, the first thing to walk through his doorway was his very own daughter. Now, there is, of course, differing understandings of what occurred next. Some say he dedicated her to some kind of religious service perpetually for the rest of her life. But others point out it was a burnt offering Jephthah vowed, and all the text tells us tersely is he did it to her as he had vowed. And for that reason, many people have suggested that Jephthah actually sacrificed his own daughter. Those who take this position are, are saying, here's how deep the canonization went among the people of God during the time of the judges. They had begun to adopt pagan worship practices, even child sacrifice, which was explicitly forbidden by the law of God. Whichever way you understand the story, Jephthah is definitively presented as a man who made a foolish and rash vow, and he didn't have to go through with it. There were provisions in the Levitical law to repent of foolish vows. But you see, to maintain his public honor, he prioritized his own reputation over his own daughter. He made a vow and he made his daughter face the lifelong consequences of that rash decision. 
So even if the more positive reading is correct and she was dedicated to a life of service, this is still a man who makes his daughter endure the consequences of his own folly. Instead of confessing a rash vow, acknowledging his foolishness and repenting of that vow, he made her accept the consequences of his folly to keep, to keep face, to maintain his reputation, to maintain his public honor. And so this is, this is men treating women, even daughters, however men please. And if the other reading is correct, which I think is actually the majority view, then this is abuse at its very, very worst. Well, then there's Samson, someone we're more familiar with, but perhaps we need to clear away some misunderstanding of Samson that we've acquired through our Sunday school classes growing up. Samson is the ultimate womanizer. Samson is a man who lives his life based entirely upon what he sees and his own sexual appetites. In Judges 14, he demands to have a Philistine as his wife because he likes what he sees despite the warnings of his parents about the danger of Israelites intermarrying with Canaanites. All that matters to Samson is what he sees and therefore he takes what he wants. And as his story unfolds, Samson is portrayed as a, as a haughty, impudent, angry, rash, independent man driven by sexual lust. It's not long before he mistreats the wife that he took. He degrades her and then, then he abandons her. In Genesis, uh, Judges chapter 14, verse 18, I'm all over the place today in my mind. In, in Judges 14, he refers to her as his heifer, which is equally offensive in English as it is in the original Hebrew. Not long after that, he abandoned her in a fit of rage and thought he could buy her favor back with a young goat, the equivalent of a dozen roses and a box of chocolates to get back into good graces. It's not all that different from what many manipulative men do today when they've sinned against their spouse and go back to her with empty words and gestures and words of flattery. Then Samson heads off to, uh, to Gaza where he he sleeps with a prostitute, and once his sexual appetites are fulfilled, he leaves her before dawn, and then he gets involved with Delilah. And the story of Delilah is a story of ironic justice. Because here is a man who thinks that he can play with women however he pleases, and at the end of the day, it is a woman who outplays Samson and proves to be his downfall. It's his own lust that proves to be his demise. And it is, only, it is only by the grace of God appearing in his life one last time at the end of his days that his life story ends the way in which it does. 
Chapter 17, briefly, uh, the story of Micah. Micah is a man who stole from his own mother, taking 1,000 shekels from her. But then I want to turn your attention to Judges 19 through 29, which contained the peak of men abusing women in the book of Judges. Uh, This tragic story begins with a Levite and his concubine, uh, essentially a long-term mistress, a practice which is just assumed. But we could talk about the immorality of having concubines. Nevertheless, here's this Levite. Levite, a member of the tribe appointed by God to serve as the religious leaders of the people of God. Here's a Levite with his concubine, and they make their way to Gibeah, and they stay within a house expecting to be safe among the Israelites. And the night in which they're staying, the men of the town come pounding on the door, demanding to have homosexual relations with the Levite. Now that's bad enough, but the men's response to that, the host of the home, his response to that is to offer his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine to satisfy the sexual lusts of these men. And what follows is indescribably wicked. And that doesn't do justice to it. Because after abusing the concubine all night, these men left her for dead at the doorstep of this man's house. And when the Levite went to leave the following morning, himself unscathed, he looks at this poor woman in a heap on the ground and without a hint of compassion or concern or care, says to her, get up, let's go not even clear whether she's still alive at this point but then things go from bad to worse in the book of judges if things can get any worse than that because the abuse of women from this event then multiplies the gruesome details of this levite hacking this woman's body into pieces and sending it out to the tribes of israel And when the people of Israel find out about this great atrocity that took place among the tribe of Benjamin, the the tribes of Israel responded by launching an attack upon their own people. And the tribe of Benjamin was nearly wiped out. and, And once again, men are making decisions affecting women without any respect to their dignity, life, or feelings. The the abuse begins with the slaughter of one innocent woman, and it leads to the, the innocent slaughter of Benjamite women and children suffering for crimes committed by the men against that concubine. See the injustice of it. And, and they slaughter all of the men, women, and children of Jabesh Gilead, except for 400 virgins. You know what the Israelites did next? They decided that the 400 virgins would be forced 
to become the wives of the surviving Benjamite men. And after these 400 virgins are assigned to particular Benjamite men, there there are still some Benjamites who are without a wife and the Israelites feel bad for them. And all of this is taking place at Shiloh, a center of cultic worship in that time. So the Israelites, feeling sorry for these Benjamites without a spouse, authorized the remaining men of Benjamin, who were without a wife, to lie in wait and then seize the young women dancing at this cultic festival. After taking what was not theirs to take, the men offered a pathetic excuse to the fathers of these daughters, and then everyone returned home like everything was fine and dandy. As you see, the 400 virgins of Jabesh Gilead, the ones who were fortunate not to be slaughtered, they lost their families, were taken from their homes, and forced to live with their captors. And the women of Shiloh were ambushed, violently seized, removed from their families, and forced to live with their captors. And not once are the women's interests considered. So you cannot, you cannot read through the book of Judges without seeing how the book is intentionally chronicling the male abuse of women and children as testimony of the spiritual rot among the people of God. And Judges chronicles various examples of, of, of men abusing women. We, we saw We saw Gideon collecting women for his public reputation and sexual pleasure. We we saw Jephthah, in some sense, sacrificing his own daughter for the sake of his reputation. We we saw uh, Samson, who saw women as nothing more than a means to sexual gratification, calling his own wife his heifer. The men of Gibeah sexually abused and murdered the concubine of the Levite, which led then to the men of Israel corporately committing criminal acts against women and acting like it was all perfectly fine. That poses, it raises the question, doesn't it? What's, what's the explanation for such depravity? What's the explanation for all of this abuse? Are are all of the Israelites just in need of uh, genetic engineering? Is there some kind of genetic malfunction among the tribes of Israel? Are are the Israelites just in need of self-esteem counseling? Or, Or is this just patriarchy at play? And that's the real problem. The structures and institutions of Israel need to be turned upside down. I don't think so. Again, that's not to say genetics doesn't play a role. Counseling is an important part of recovery that, uh, that corrupt institutions and structures don't need to be changed. But I think Judges offers a deeper explanation, a theological explanation of abuse. I have to be quick here. So the cause cited for the abuse that took place in the days of the Judges is seen fundamentally as a spiritual problem. The the problem of abuse between men and women 
is indicative of a problem between God and man. Israel had forgotten God and turned to do what was right in their own eyes. And so their mistreatment of women and children was the outworking of their spiritual rebellion against God. Incidentally, I think that has an important lesson for those who have experienced abuse in their own lives. Because one of the issues that victims of abuse all face is the question, is this my fault? Have I, have I done something to deserve all of this abuse? The physical, the sexual, the financial, the social, the psychological and spiritual abuse. And have, have I done something to deserve this? And one of the things Judges teaches us is that there is nothing anyone can do to deserve this. And the real cause of this, fundamentally at its core, is an individual who has turned their back on God and is doing what is right in their own eyes. And so the explanation of judges is that the mistreatment of women among the people of God is a signal that abusers have forgotten God and are doing what is right in their own eyes. They are experiencing, if you like, culpable divine amnesia, forgetting who God is, forgetting what God has done, and they are living by their own fallen sinful morality. And so at the end of the day, we, we say that unbelief and pride are the twin root causes of abuse. It's not to say that there isn't more to be added to understanding the causes of abuse. And for sure, don't, don't hear me as saying that I'm ruling out other uh, parts of the solution because the solution, according to judges is to remember the Lord, to humble oneself, to repent and to no longer do what is right in your own eyes. Because if Judges tells us, if people will seek the Lord's face, turn from their wicked ways, that he will forgive them and heal them. And my friends, that forgiving and transforming grace will create a community of people and families where women, women are treated with dignity, respect, love, and care. And I think in Ephesians 5 and 6, we have one example in the Bible of that glorious vision of what it will look like. So I want to turn our attention there for a few moments. Because if Judges chronicles fallen masculinity, then Paul gives us Gloriously contrasting vision for renewed masculinity in Christ. Uh, in context, Paul is speaking to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus and who have embraced the gospel. Uh, those who are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and for the grace to walk in the light. Those who have received the spirit of Christ who dwells in their hearts. That's who Paul is speaking to in the latter half of the letter to the Ephesians. And he says to them, you know, there's this former way of life 
In, in Ephesians 4, 17 and following, it's marked by futility of mind, darkened understanding, alienation from the life of God, hardness of heart, callousness, sensuality, and impurity. But in Christ, there is a new way of life, Paul says. A new humanity that God is bringing together in Christ. And in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, down to chapter 6, verse 9, Paul turns attention to the home, the household code. Essentially a guideline for families grounded in grace and centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, I think, important to recognize, though, that household codes in this time period were a normal cultural thing. But what Paul does is he radically subverts the standards of his and our day with the household code that he sets forth here. Because in ancient household codes, often wives and children and, and servants, well, they were never addressed if they were mentioned at all. And the household code basically served as a means to say that the wife, children, and servants exist for the man of the house. And Paul turns that upside down to say that the man exercises his roles for the benefit of others. He, he loves his wife. He takes responsibility for the care and nurture of his children and he even cares for his servants. Paul is saying... Headship is for service, not self-indulgence. In Greco-Roman culture, everything revolved around the man of the house. The wife existed for the husband. Children were the responsibility of, of women and slaves. The house husband played little to no role in raising the children, except perhaps with the sons when they reached teenage years. Servants had no rights. The master could treat his servants however he saw fit. And you see what Paul is doing here. He rejects all of that and calls men, in contrast, to sacrificially love their wives, to take responsibility for their children and the instruction of their children, and to care for the servants of his household. One other thing I want you to notice here, just by way of introduction in these verses, is... Wives are addressed once, children are addressed once, and servants are addressed once. But the man of the house, if we want to call him that, the husband, father, master, is addressed three times, indicating that Paul's stress and concern is on how this person lives. So if anybody comes to me after the service and says, Pastor Jared, why did you focus so much upon the failures of men and focus so much upon the responsibilities of husbands? husbands? My, my short answer is because that's what the book of Judges and that's what the book of Ephesians does. So you've been warned, don't ask that question. This is true masculinity as it is renewed in Christ. Uh, let, let's just look briefly at these Household relations, husband, wife, parent, child, master, servant. Paul, to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Agape love. Jesus-like love. A self-giving love whereby Christ gave himself up for his bride. It's selfless. It's other-centered. It's sacrificial. And dear fathers and brothers, we are not ready to talk about headship and authority as husbands until we recognize that headship is to be exercised within the context of self-sacrificial service for the good and the holiness of our bride and our children. And so, so men who, who are married, young men who one day hope to be married, this is, this is what God calls us to as husbands in Christ and how warped we are in our thinking. If we have turned headship into a means of bossing others around in the home and thinking that our wives and our children ought to wait at our feet to tend to our every need, that is turning biblical headship on its head. What about the father-child relationship? Uh, he, he says to fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Right away, it's worth noticing that he uses the word that would include daughters. Uh, technon, not chuyas. Uh, so, so sons and daughters, not just sons. Because in the Greco-Roman world, fathers typically only paid attention to their sons. But here, daughters are also included and dignified. And the father is saying, bring them up. Uh, it means to nourish. The, the other place that this word is used is just earlier in Ephesians 5, where it talks about husbands nourishing their own bodies. So nourish them. How? Nourish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so Paul is charging fathers with the responsibility of raising their children to know and follow Jesus. And so the picture of the husband-father is a man who loves his wife sacrificially and who bears the weight of the responsibility of raising and instructing the children of the home. What about the master-servant relationship? We don't have time to clear away some of the misunderstandings of why is the Bible talking about masters and slaves? Don't have, you know, what, what we have in mind often here because of our American story. But uh, after, after speaking to the servants, what does Paul tell the servants? Obey, obey your masters, he says. Paul turns to the master and says, do the same thing. A possible meaning is that Paul is saying to masters, to have an attitude of service to their servants and not treat them as property, but to treat them as Christ has treated them. To treat them no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, just as Paul instructed Philemon elsewhere. So put, put these two pictures then side by side. Judges and Ephesians. In Judges, you have this picture of fallen masculinity, men abusing authority, abusing women, degrading women, using women, men who viewed women as trophies and sex objects. It is, it is fallen masculinity in, in all of its various ugliness. 
And at its core, it is the result when men forget God, forget who God is, forget what God has done and will do. And they turn from him and begin to do what is right in their own eyes. That's one picture we see this morning. And then see in contrast to that, the Pauline vision of redeemed masculinity in Christ, which is radically different, radically subversive to the standards of not only our culture, but I think at times often the church. Yes, Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord and children to obey their parents in the Lord. And that is certainly something we should spend time reflecting upon. And we need to say that is good instruction because it is according to God's good design for families. But I focused upon the husband and father today because I want you to understand and see that the picture is not of a subjugated wife who unquestionably bends herself to the will of her husband in all things and who bears all of the weight of running the home and raising the children and tending to her husband's every need. My friends, that is a distortion that needs to go. Paul's primary target in this household code is the man. And he envisions a man who so loves his wife that he puts her first. A man who takes responsibility for the nurture and instruction of his children that they might know and follow Christ. A man who willingly serves the lowliest in his home. That, Paul is saying, is true masculinity as it is seen most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And would to God that there would be more of it in our churches, more of it in our homes, because fathers and brothers, we we must confess that we all have fallen short here. We have all failed to be the men God calls us to be in Christ. But let's remember, as Judges teaches us, that God is full of grace and mercy. And remember that his ways are better than our ways, better than the ways of our culture. And let us return to him again in repentance. And let's pray for the grace to be the men calls us to be in our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that he might be exalted in our church and within our homes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word once again. And we pray that you would indeed give us all the grace to be the men and the women and the children that you call us to be in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we uh, think about these things, I am very mindful of the fact that some of our minds are drawn to the fact that we have experienced this kind of failure in our own lives, perhaps as husbands or perhaps as wives or children. We thank you that whatever our position in life, whatever our lot in life, we can know that the calling of husbands and fathers ultimately is meant to point us to the faithful love and care that we can all know and experience in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Pray that we all would find refuge and rest and comfort and security in him today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.